Well, uh, here, here's what we're doing. We're walking through the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. We're done with Ezra. Uh, we've been done with that for a couple weeks. Pastor Chris has been in the pulpit for you uh, for the last couple of Sundays. Um, I was out of town last week. I, I was traveling to Iowa for a conference, and uh, he, uh, uh, Chris preached through chapters 3 and 4. And what we saw in chapters 3 and 4 were, uh, was what we've seen really throughout this whole book, which is that there is opposition to the people of God from outside of the people of God, right? That the nations in the, in the Old Testament context, unbelievers uh, don't always uh, like what's happening in the church. And, and that is definitely a reality. However, we also see in these books, I love how both Ezra and Nehemiah make this point very, very clear that yes, there's opposition to God's work from outside of the church, but there's also problems within the church. And I think actually what Nehemiah is going to show us uh, and what we've seen already in Ezra is that some of the worst things happen internally among the people of God. And, and I don't know if you've ever noticed this in your life or not, but Christians can be terrible sometimes, right? You can laugh about that, I guess. It's, we, if we don't laugh, we cry, I guess. But um, they can. We can be nasty to each other. And, and all of us, I think, probably have felt that. Um, we... The, the buzzword right now about this is church hurt. Uh, that's what people kind of throw, throw out there is that we're, we're hurt by the church. And yes, we are. We, uh, I'm a pastor and I've been hurt by the church. Um, not necessarily this one, thankfully. Um, maybe a little bit here and there, but you know, not, not too badly. I'm still here. Um, but, but I've been a part of the church my whole life and, and I've definitely felt this. And sometimes it feels like Christians um, are, are the worst, you know, and and I think that's, that's a reality that the Bible doesn't actually shy away from. Uh, it's, a, it's a reality that the Bible addresses head on and shows us the truth of that and, and then shows us the way forward, which is uh, amazing. And so I, 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 can't, uh, I can't promise you, uh, and I never will promise you, that you're never going to be hurt here. You've, if you've been here long enough, you probably already have been hurt here um, but I can promise you that it's our, it's our heart, our leadership's heart and desire that this church would not only preach the gospel of grace uh, from the pulpit, but that we would live the gospel of grace among one another. That is the hope and the heart behind this. And the way we express that is it's kind of a mantra of ours, and I've stolen it from, from others, but the, the mantra is gospel doctrine creates gospel culture. You've probably heard me say that at some point or another, if you've been here a long time, gospel doctrine creates gospel culture. And what we mean by that when we say that is that what we believe from the, from the scriptures about God and who he is and what he's revealed to us and what he's done for us in Jesus Christ should actually change the way we live among one another. That's Gospel doctrine being what we believe to be true from God's word. Gospel culture is how we actually live as if that's true. And, and the, the problem is, is that a lot of us can go onto any random church's website and learn all about the doctrine of that church. You'll, you'll probably go on our website. You go on the front homepage. You got our doctrinal statement. It's not hard to find what we believe um, and most churches, if they have websites, and most do, they're going to have something, some page on their webpage about their beliefs. The, that's not hard to find. What a church believes is easy to find. What a church 
does, what its culture is, is only experienced. It's, it's not, it can't be defined. It has to be lived. And it's always a work in progress for every church because every Christian in every church is a sinner who, has, who makes mistakes and has flaws. Uh, and every one of us does. And so we, we, need to, we need to recognize that on one hand, that we're going to be hurt by one another intentionally or unintentionally. And so we need to be ready to extend grace and we also need to be ready to give grace and, and uh, give grace, extend grace, and, and receive grace, I should say. And that's where gospel culture comes in. And, and so what we're seeing in Nehemiah 5 is the Old Testament variation of this gospel doctrine, gospel culture uh, disconnect. That there's a, there's a disconnect between what the people of God believed and what they did, how they lived and what they were doing within the context of the community. So Nehemiah is a story about, uh, Ezra and Nehemiah are actually both the same story, just from different perspectives. But the story is that the people of Israel have been in exile in Babylon for about 70 years at the start of the story. They are given the permission to go back to their homeland, to Israel, to Judah, to rebuild Jerusalem. And uh, they begin that work. They, they build the temple again that had been destroyed by the Babylonians. Uh, and Nehemiah's work is to build the wall around the city of Jerusalem to protect it from, obviously in an ancient culture, right? There's all kinds of peoples that are wanting to take land and dominate and all those things. So you build walls to protect your, your cities. And that's what they would do. And so Nehemiah's job was to build that wall uh, along with the other men of Israel. And so that's where we, we are and the work is happening. It's not quite finished yet. We see it finished, completed in chapter six. Um, but chapter five is sort of an interlude as the work is continuing on in the face of opposition from, from the nations outside, the Canaanites and the, and the Hittites and all these ites that are out there. Um, they're, they're being opposed by those people, but they're still pressing on. They're still working. And yet now we see that there's an even bigger problem. And it doesn't happen from outside. It happens from within. So look at verse one. We're going to look at verse one to five uh, to start here, but we'll actually read verse one first and then stop and talk a little. It says, now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. Okay, so let's just stop there. There's a great outcry, which means that people are suffering. People are um, protesting. Uh, this is what's happening, right? When you cry out and you're making your voices heard, you're expressing uh, a problem that you feel, that you're, that you're dealing with, that you're encountering. And there's a great outcry of the people and of their wives, which is an interesting detail because you could have just lumped the wives in with the people, Right? So there's a specific reason why Nehemiah is pointing out the wives, and we'll get to that in a minute. But look at who they're crying out against. It's not the Canaanites. It's not the Hittites. It's, it's their Jewish brothers. This is, a, this is an outcry against what's happening internally in, among the people of God. And what is that problem? Look at verse 2 through 5. It, get, it defines the problem for us. 
For there were those who said, with our sons and our daughters, we are many, so let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. And there were also those who said, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers, our children as their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved. But it's not in our power to help it, for other men have our fields and our vineyards. This is a big problem. Here's what's happening. Um, there's, there's a number of things happening, and most most crises uh, are not just one thing. It's usually a lot of things that are kind of contributing to a problem. But the primary issue here is that people are starving because there's a famine. And uh, they, because there's a famine, that's kind of trickling down all the problems, is that this famine has created a, a shortage in food, which has created a shortage in money in an agricultural uh, context. These people depended on their crops to provide money. Uh, they could sell the crops and then use that money to pay their mortgages, pay the taxes. Instead, uh, because of the shortage, they don't have the money. So now they're borrowing money from their Jewish brothers um, to pay those taxes, to pay those mortgages. And now somebody else, those lenders, own the fields and they own the vineyards and they own the houses because that's what happens when you borrow money. The, the, you are a slave to the lender. That is, that is what debt is. And so... These people are now in debt and it has reached a point where they have had to now do the absolute craziest thing, unthinkable thing, and sell their children into slavery. Now, slavery in this context is, is different than slavery as we often think of it in the American context. In the American context, slavery was um, bringing people from the continent of Africa over here, um, enslaving them for their entire lives, and also their children and their grandchildren. Just everyone is always enslaved until there's a civil war fought and freed slaves. But um, the, the, the form of slavery in the ancient world was a little different than that. It wasn't a lifelong, uh, forever generational form of slavery based off racism, uh, largely in, in our context. It was, it was a, a means of paying off debt. It was an indentured servanthood is what is the technical term for it. But you would, you would work for someone until the debt was paid and then you were freed after the debt was paid. But here's the problem is that Nehemiah is kind of contributing to the problem a little bit himself because he has all the men in Jerusalem building the wall. And so now there's a shortage of staffing on the farms. And so now the wives are, are doing the brunt of the work along with the children and that's obviously a, a difficult position to put them in. And now the, the money's being called up. The, the, the loans are being called or the interest is being called to be paid. They don't have the money because there's a famine. So there's all these problems, right? And so they sell their children into slavery. And that's, that's crazy in and of itself, and at least in our modern mentality, um, but the worst of it is, is that they're not selling their children into slavery externally like they were in Babylon or like they were to the Egyptians even long before this. They are selling their children into slavery to one another. 
That's what it says in verse five. Our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers. Our children are as their children, yet we're forcing our sons and daughters to be slaves. So it's just an unthinkable thing. And I think uh, in, in some sense, we forget this point about the Old Testament is that the Old Testament people of Israel were all one family. It was a large family, very large family, but they all extend back to a common father, Abraham. And so this is like, and in, in, now obviously by this point in history, they're probably all like sixth or seventh cousins now, right? They're not super close related, but they are a family and they're selling or forcing to, being forced to sell their sons and daughters into slavery. That's wild. And, and uh, we can understand why there's a great outcry among the people and their wives. Verse six, uh, here's the response that Nehemiah has to it. He says, I was very angry when I heard their outcry in these words. I took counsel with myself and brought charges against the nobles and the officials. So notice that the, the problem isn't the average person, it's the wealthy and the powerful, the nobles and the officials who are doing the enslaving. Nehemiah is, as we'll see in this chapter, is the governor. Uh, he's, so he's in the official uh, political position of governor. And he has some authority. But he hears the outcry of the people and he's, he's angry at this, as any of us would be too. Right? That's a very normal response to the fact that you you're being, what, forced to sell your children into slavery? What, what's happening? And he's furious about this. And so he takes counsel with himself, meaning he gives some thought to the situation. And then he brings these charges against the nobles and officials. And I said to them, so he's speaking here in the first person. I said to them, you are exacting interest each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them. And I said to them, we, as far as we are able, have, brought, have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations. But you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. So notice what Nehemiah is saying. He's, he's saying, we did everything in our power to, to free Jewish people from their slavery to the nations to the Canaanites, to the Hittites, to the Amorites, to all these people around them, right? And if there, were any, if there were any Jews who had been sold into slavery to those people, Nehemiah, probably with that, that ridiculous amount of silver that they dragged with them, if we remember that from Ezra and Nehemiah here, they bring this ridiculous amount of money. They used some of that money to purchase the freedom of their Jewish brothers from that slavery. And now he's appalled because he's looking internally at the people of God and going, now you're selling each other to each other? After we did all of this to get them freed? And he, he's just, it's just remarkable. And look at their response at the end of verse eight. It says they were silent and could not find a word to say. Yeah, because they knew they were, I mean, you know, you know when you're caught. When you're caught red-handed doing something you know you shouldn't do, you have no excuse. You're just like, okay, yeah, shoot. <laughs> and that's where they're at. So Nehemiah says to them, verse 9, the thing that you are doing is not good. That's the understatement of the century, but okay. <laughs> Ought you not to walk in the fear of God? 
to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies. Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses. And the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. So uh, he, he's saying, here's what we got to do. We've got to make restitution. You've got to give them back their land, give them back their houses. You need to stop calling up the interest payments. Uh, and on top of that, you need to return all the prior interest payments to them if they paid you in wine or oil or, or grain or whatever they paid that interest payment with. Give that back to them as well. Now, this is, this is a big ask, right? Because the nobles and the officials, the people who are lending them money are, are very much within their right to say, no, that's ridiculous. They got themselves into this situation. I had to, they, they came to me, they asked for, for my help and this was the terms and we came to an agreement and what you're asking me to do, Nehemiah, is not gonna happen. But this is not what they say. Amazingly, verse 12, they said, we will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priests and I made them swear to do it. He didn't even believe that they would. So he's like, I'm going to make you swear to this and, and do as they had promised. And then he says, he also shook out the fold of my garment and said, so may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. So he does this little kind of visual aid situation and he has a robe on or whatever he was wearing and he must have had some coins or something in there and he's just shaking out his pockets and all the money's flying out on the ground and, and he says, God's going to do that to you if you don't hold up your end of the bargain. It's, I kind of have the picture of this, the schoolyard bully who steals the, the you know, lunch money from the kids, you know, turn them upside down, shake them out and let them, right? God's going to do that apparently. Um, and, it said, and then it says, all the assembly said, amen, and praised the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. So they didn't need to be shaken out. They, they did what they said they would do. There's two things here. Nehemiah is calling out the actions of those who are causing the suffering. He's calling out the sin. And this is a sin. The Old Testament law um, prohibited the abuses of the poor. God had set up a system in which there was fairness um, and, and this, was not, this was not following God's plan and they were breaking this, this law. Now, Nehemiah is especially appalled because this is happening in-house. This is happening among God's people, among the Old Testament church and Nehemiah calls them out to this, calls them to repentance. And against all belief, they actually repent. <laughs> they, the, and this is what's amazing is that these are the nobles and the officials. These are the people in power. These are the people with money. These are the people who have all the control over the situation. How often do we see people in power repent of their abuses? Feels like never. But it happens. It's rare, but it happens. 
and, but it only happens by God's grace working in them and changing their hearts. And so Nehemiah calls them to repentance and they respond to repentance. Now the last section of chapter five uh, is again Nehemiah just kind of talking about uh, his own life and giving us a model of, of uh, his leadership or showing us what his leadership was like. Look at what he says, verse 14 through 19. It says, Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, 12, for 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took them uh, took from them for their daily ration 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people. But I did not do so because of the fear of God. I also persevered in the work of this wall and we acquired no land, meaning you didn't have to take anybody's land to do this job. <laughs> and all my servants were gathered there for the work, meaning everybody who works for Nehemiah, was working on the wall. They weren't being hypocrites. And says, moreover, there were at my table 150 men. That's a big table. Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now, what was prepared at my expense for each day was an ox and six choice sheep and birds and every 10 days all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this, I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because the service was too heavy on this people. Remember for my good, oh my God, all that I have done for this people. Now, Nehemiah's walking us through, it maybe sounds a little braggadocious in some way, but he's not really bragging. He's recording his model of leadership. He's, he's telling us that Nehemiah had the right as governor to take an allowance of food. He, it, was his, it was his right in his position. And, and that was one of the ways that he was paid for his work. And he was given a certain amount of food that would have been allowed, allotted to him. But he specifically makes mention here that he does not take that allowance. He doesn't use, it, uh, use his position for personal gain now, clearly he's not starving to death. He gets an ox and a bunch of sheep and some chickens, probably. He calls them birds, but, you know, probably chickens. Um, and, and here, uh, he's, he's getting a ton of wine every, every 10 days. Like, he's not hurting, right? But he's not taking more than he needs, is the point. He, he has the right to do it, but he doesn't. What he's doing here is he's showing us that he's living a modest life. Uh, and it's a modest life, especially for those in that culture at that time, in, those, in, in this kind of a world. It was very common for the officials, the people in power, to take advantage of their, their position. Uh, and it kind of is that way today too, right? I mean, it's not really changed too much. People in power tend to use their power to enrich themselves. Um, but Nehemiah didn't do that. He lived a modest life. He also lived a compassionate life. He saw the pleas of the people. And he said, you know, these people are suffering. So why should I be living the high life? 
And then he lived a generous life, right? A life in which he gave much. He expected much of those who worked for him. He was generous with his table. He had 150 people eating at that table, many of them Jews and some of them officials from outside the nation. But he, he opened up his home, his table, and, and, and cared for the people. In fact, did above and beyond that to free people from their slavery. In short, what he was doing was he was walking with God in a way that loved God and loved his neighbor. He was modeling the heart of the law in that. So here's the question though, because the temptation is we can read Nehemiah and go, yeah, Nehemiah did all these nice things for the people, so let's just be like Nehemiah. But is that really the point? No, the point is as Christians to be like Jesus, right? So where do we find Jesus in this text? And actually, I think he's everywhere in this text. Um, Let me just point out a couple things. Nehemiah clearly did the right thing for the people of Israel. But Jesus did and has done far, far greater for us. Jesus didn't just forego his daily allowance of food, but left his throne in heaven to come to this earth, to live among sinful people, to take on the form of a servant, and to walk a life for 30 years or so, all the way to a Roman cross, to die a horrendous death in the place of you and me. Philippians chapter 2 shows us this. As, as great as Nehemiah was in his day, he's far from what Christ was and is. Philippians 2, 6 through 8 tells us that Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. That word grasped means to hold on to something selfishly. He didn't consider his equality with God. Though he was equal with God, he is God. He's the second member of the Trinity. He did not count that equality as something to be grasped, but rather emptied himself, it says, by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is how Jesus leads us in humility and sacrifice and grace all the way to death for our sins. But that's gospel doctrine, right? That's that's what we know is true from the word of God. But where does the gospel culture fit into that? That's actually where Paul begins that section, actually, in Philippians 2. And the the verse just before he goes into that, all that I just read about Christ becoming man and going to the cross, here's what Paul says. He says that we as his followers are to have this mind among ourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Meaning that as Jesus models humility and sacrifice and servanthood, all the way to death, you and I, as people with the mind of Christ, should do the same for one another. The mind of Christ in us leads us 
to humble uh, love for each other. Even though we're not called to go to the cross for each other in the same way Christ was, we are called to love and humbly lay down our preferences and our personal viewpoints for the good of others. This is one, one of the things I've, I've picked up from a, a woman named Diane Langberg, who is an author, and she, she wrote, I'm reading one of her books called um, Suffering in the Heart of God right now. I'm just kind of slowly working my way through it. And one of the things she says in there that struck me was this. She said, God never calls us to something we do not first find in him. Let me say that again. God never calls us to something we do not first find in him. And I think that's what we're seeing in Nehemiah 5. It's what we're seeing in an Old Testament sense before Jesus, the the same God who is Christ Jesus in in human form. That, That God is still the same God in the Old Testament. He doesn't change. He's not a different God. And that God is working in Nehemiah's life and heart, even in a shadowed kind of way. And that fullness of, of sacrifice is revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. But as we follow Jesus Christ, we are called to live out and embody gospel culture that, that enables us to love those that we're around and particularly those who are suffering. Jesus points this out to us himself in Matthew 25, um, in verse 31 uh, through 40, Jesus is talking about the final judgment of when he comes in his glory. But what he says is very helpful for us. He says, when the son of man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, and then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people from one, one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will s- place the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, the right being those who are the sheep, his, his followers. Here's what he says to them. Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Now notice a couple of things here. Jesus is not saying that if we are going to have heaven, we must do all these things. That's not what he's saying. He says, before he gets into any of this, he says in verse 34, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. You don't earn an inheritance. You're given an inheritance. You don't work for an inheritance. That'd be a job. An inheritance is what you, what you are given from your family and whatever that is left after they have passed on into glory and they inherit to you. 
what we're being told is that even if you have no earthly inheritance coming to you, you have a heavenly inheritance through Jesus Christ. The Father will give you the kingdom. But, the, but the, uh, what we see in this passage is that there is a certain um, characteristic that comes out of people who have been changed by the gospel. And that is what he's laying out. He's saying that those who care for those who are broken are caring for Christ because we are sons and daughters. And so we live out of that identity. Again, Diane Langberg mentions this. She says, talking about these verses, she says, those that Jesus will call to his own will be recognized by their acts of giving water to the thirsty, food to the hungry, clothes to the naked, and visits to the sick and the prisoner. These are very mundane acts of human compassion given to those who are suffering. And the king says that those who minister in such ways have ministered to him. As we do the ordinary human things that we know to do, in some mysterious way, we are caring for the Lord and his suffering. That, that's really helpful. These are not things that we have to have on a checklist and go, did I feed the hungry today? Did I clothe those without clothes? Did I visit a prisoner today? And then just check that off the box and go, okay, I'm inheriting the kingdom of heaven. No, that would be you earning the kingdom of heaven. What this is, is a, is a, a model of living a life out of sonship and daughtership to Christ um, and, and for him. And so a gospel culture is a, is a culture in a church in which the Christians are known as people of compassion towards those in suffering. Are we growing in compassion? None of us are going to be all the way where we should be, but are we growing in that direction? Second thing I want to point out from Nehemiah 5 is that Christians have to be concerned with repentance. When we're doing harm to others and that harm is pointed out to us, it's revealed to us, it's shown to us, like whether that's from a, a good friend who says, hey man, you shouldn't be doing that. That's not, that's not in alignment with the, with the gospel or, or whether we're shown that from the Bible or whether we're shown that just by the Spirit impressing upon us these things. What we should never do is just dig our heels in and continue to hurt we should admit our failures and do what we can to remedy the situation. That's what happened when the people were confronted by Nehemiah. They didn't dig their heels in and make excuses. They were silent. They didn't have a word to say. And when he told them what they ought to do to make amends, they did it. Uh, people, the people who were abusing their power in that story of Nehemiah were confronted by that sin and they actually changed by God's grace. Here's the question for us. Are we humble? Are we humble enough to admit when we're wrong? You know, we all have met that person who will never admit they're wrong. And nobody really likes that, right? Because <laughs> it just shows something busted there. There's a brokenness there. There's a, there's a pride there that you're like, can I just like, shake it out of you because it's there. I know you know this is wrong, but of course we can't, right? Gospel culture doesn't require us to do that. What it does is it, it, it shows us that 
we will hurt one another. And when we do, we should own that, confess that, and seek restoration as a result. Finally, um, one more point here and then we'll, we'll sing together. God's people, I think this passage is pointing us to this, that God's people are called to give up their own privileges for the sake of others. And I know that word privilege is a little bit of a buzzword right now, okay? I, I get that. I'm not trying to like trigger you, okay? Another buzzword. Um, <laughs> but what I mean by privileges is simply like you, you have been given everything in Christ. Ephesians 1 tells us that. And, and we need to be willing to lay aside the things that we may even have a right to. Um, in, in view of this uh, passage, Nehemiah shows us that, that reality. He doesn't live the way he could have lived. He lives instead in the fear of God. Jesus Christ far, far greater shows this. He sacrificed himself all the way to the cross. And so the, the reality is, is that the gospel calls us to lay aside our, our privileges and our rights and our, uh, our, what, what we feel like we've deserved or earned. We can put those things aside to say, you know, I'm going to do for the other person what they need and be more concerned about that than I am about myself. That's really, it feels impossible because nobody wants to do that. But what the gospel does is it changes us into people who are modeling a new humanity to the world. Like the world is very good at taking what's theirs. The church should be the exact opposite of that as we grow in it. We're not there all the way, but we should be growing towards that. One more thing real quickly is this. Jesus Christ is not a hypocrite. He never asks you to do anything he didn't do himself. Far greater than you could ever do it. In fact, he did everything he did for your sake, for you, in your place, so that when you fail to do it, those sins are not held against you. Jesus goes all the way to the cross, suffers the agonies of hell for us, but he does call us into a crucifixion life to express his love, his love for others and to the world at large. My hope and my heart in this has always been uh, for the last, I don't know, five, six years at least, to, to see Springbrook Church just continue to grow towards gospel culture we're not, all, we're not always going to be there. We're not going to be there perfectly. But my prayer has been that God would create a culture among us where people come from outside of us, come from a broken place, from a hard world, can come into this community and say, wow, God really is there. That's my prayer. That's my hope. I think we're getting there gradually. We have, we have a... I, I, I know I am incredibly far from where I want to be. I'm sure that's true of you if you look at yourself uh, with honesty too. But let's pray and seek the Lord's help in seeing this culture grow 
so that we don't sit contented with people suffering and hurting and being broken, but we can step into those places where Jesus would want us to be and where Jesus is. And, and I, again, I want to just close with this because it's, it's a passage like this, a sermon like this can, can really show us our failures, right? It's, it's like a, holding up a mirror to our face and going, wow, I am not what I should be. And you're not. And neither am I. But, but what I want you to think about today is think about that thing in your life that you are the most ashamed of. The thing that you would never say to, to another person. That thing that you think to yourself, I will die before this ever gets out into public. We all have something like that. I want you to know that that is where Jesus wants to love you the most. Right there. In that space. And he presses us forward by his strength and his grace. Don't be in despair. Know that Christ has loved you and died for you and loves you exactly where you are and he's calling you forward and pulling you forward most of the time. So let me pray and we'll conclude today. Jesus, we thank you for your grace and your love and the mercy we have uh, through you. I pray, God, that this, this little church, this, this body of believers in Anago, Wisconsin, would be a place where, where people come and, and say, this is where Jesus is, and not in a boastful way or an, an artificial way, but in a way that just genuinely flows from who you are and how that's impacted our lives. Would you help us to help one another love you And we pray that you would do that work among us. We ask that as we continue to worship through singing and response and eating and drinking in remembrance of you in just a moment, would you meet us here by your grace and through your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. We're gonna take some time to eat and drink and remember.